Hi everyone. Our reading tonight's from Mark um, 8, 31 to 37. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get, me, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Uh, we're heading into the uh, toward the Easter season, and uh, Lent is the name given to the forty days that occur in the period leading up to Easter, and that begins this coming week. That begins on about Wednesday, what they some churches call Ash Wednesday. And so we as a church are going to go on a journey one week early. We're starting tonight. We're going to go on a journey of sermons called Toward the Tomb, a series of, of reflections, a series of learnings about Jesus, his coming, his death and his resurrection. So Heavenly Father, as we take our first step toward the tomb tonight, we pray to God that you would be moving powerfully by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. And Lord, as we read the scriptures, your scriptures read us. They are living and active, slicing us deep into our heart. And so, dear God, we sit under the authority of your holy word and we subject ourselves to the things that we will learn and the comforts and the commands that we will be um, sharing tonight in the name of Christ. Amen. So, toward the tomb, part one title of the talk tonight is this, the cross was no accident. The cross was no accident. In the English language, if we go to something like the Merriam-Webster dictionary, probably my favourite dictionary to check things out, it says this, it's true, uh, yes, going to have a good dictionary to get your facts right, a sudden event that is not planned or intended and that causes damage or injury, an event that occurs by chance. A sudden event that is not planned or intended, that causes damage or injury, an event that occurs by chance. I want to tell you again that the cross of Christ was no accident. When you first look at it, it could look like an accident. Because what have you got? You've got a man that's driven by money follower of Jesus that betrays him into the hands of his enemies for a sum of money. There is a behind-the-scenes meeting where he betrays his best friend for cash. So does that look very planned? Certainly in the mind of Judas Iscariot it was, but looks like a part of a, a rolling disaster to me. There's a mob driven by jealousy stirred up by the religious leaders coming up the hill, grabbing hold of Jesus in the dead of night and taking him off with a midnight trial. Uh, more dawn, 
accusations and trials, dragged out and by mid-morning on a cross. Could be seen to be somewhat of a horrendous, tragic conspiracy of people. A governor who was driven by expediency washed his hands of the whole affair and just said, you do it your way. So what appears to be the plan of people, I want to tell you, was actually the master plan of God for salvation of the world. So what appears to be the plans of people just to take hold of Jesus, lay hold of him and kill him, was actually the long master plan of God for the salvation of humanity. The cross was no accident. In our Bible study group, we use a thing called the Swedish method of studying, where we just grab a chapter of the Bible and we ask about five or six of the same questions each week, but we learn different things because each chapter of the Bible reveals different things about life and God. And we were going through Mark's gospel doing this. We went through the 15 chapters or 16 chapters of Mark's gospel using this method of questions. And as we got through to the middle chapters, I started to notice a trend that was absolutely unavoidable that you miss sometimes if you don't read the Bible on an ongoing fashion. If you read the Bible just bits and pieces at a time, you miss some of the important recurring rhythms of Scripture. What I started to see in chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter is the very clear understanding that Jesus Christ had that he would in fact be delivered over to evil people, that he would be killed and that he would rise again. You know, in our passage, we had that read to us and I'm going to put some other passages up, but we had that. Jesus, we're in the middle of Mark's gospel. Chapter 8 is very pivotal. The whole thing seems to shift from the teaching in public ministry into a focus towards the cross of Christ. And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is a great reference that he has for himself, when you see that, it doesn't refer to his humanity. The Son of Man in the Bible does not refer to the humanity of Jesus. It refers to a title given to the Son of God in Daniel chapter 7. Go back and have a read of it. You will never see that phrase the same again. He takes it upon himself. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The very people should understand God, know God, understand the purposes of God, know who Messiah was. Rejected by these people, he must be killed and three days rise again. And then he starts this argument And Peter just flares up at that because he wants Jesus to be an earthly king. But Jesus understands this. He must suffer and he must die. And I just we're going to have a look at some other references. Let's have a look at another reference. Here's a couple. So we we jump one chapter in Mark's gospel, and this is what we read. So Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first, probably a reference to John the Baptist and restore all things. Why then is it written, the Son of Man, there's that phrase again, must suffer much and be rejected. He's reinforcing what he reinforced in the previous chapter. He says it again, down in verse 31. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus is crystal clear in his mind. That his death is no accident. That he's been sent into this world to die for the sins of humanity and be raised again for the victory uh, that we all share in him. 
Let's go again. Mark chapter 10, one more chapter on. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles because they are the ones that crucified Christ. Pontius Pilate got a group of guards, Gentiles, and they took Jesus out and crucified him. Handed over to the Gentiles. And notice this. This is what Jesus already knows before the time of that crucifixion and uh, mocking on Good Friday, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days he rises, he will rise. Can you not see? Jesus has a very clear understanding from what the Spirit of God has revealed to him and clearly portrayed in Scripture. He knows exactly what is going to happen. So when Judas Iscariot leads a mob up the hill to kiss him on the cheek, so that he will identify who he wants to be arrested and the mob will seize Jesus and take him down bound and within, within probably about nine or ten hours he's going to be crucified. Christ knows exactly what is going to happen and he presses into that. In Gethsemane, Jesus signed off on that. He was praying. He knew in Gethsemane when he was praying and his disciples were sleeping, though he asked them there for their support. He was praying and he knew that this cup this cup of God's anguish and pain draining the punishment of humanity upon himself. He knew that that was going to be. So when he was praying intently in Gethsemane, he knew what he was signing off on. He knew that they were coming, that they would arrest him, they would turn him over, that they would give him false trials, that they would flog him, mock him and crucify him. But then he would rise again. So the cross of Christ was no accident. Let's trace a bit of this back through history. Not only was it revealed to Jesus in his time, it was long since foretold. Look, let's have a look at this. Way back when mankind fell away from, G from God in the Garden of Eden and God was issuing out the curses uh, upon men and upon women, he was also cursing uh, the enemy of God, Satan, who had appeared in a serpent in this particular passage. And he is talking what his destiny is going to be. And he speaks of one who is promised right back in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the Bible. God promises that this enemy of God is going to be defeated. And this is what he says. He says to him this, I will put enmity between the, the, you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So right at the very beginning. When the accuser, when the tempter had taken people away from God, God had stepped in and said, there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day for you. I'm going to send, I'm going to send an offspring in and he is going to crush your head. But you will strike his heel. We see the heel strike, of course, with Jesus on his death on the cross. But what has he done there? He's crushed the head of the enemy. And the one who drew us away from God is defeated then and now we can be restored. So right from the beginning of the Bible, we see that God's plan of salvation will involve the suffering of one who would be sent, but who would have the victory, who would have the head-crushing victory over the enemy of God. Let's go on to the next passage. Psalm 22. When I first read this as a Christian, I thought it must have been somebody who was written by an eyewitness. To the crucifixion, in fact, written about a thousand years before the crucifixion. I thought this must, I couldn't believe my eyes as a new Christian as I'd read this psalm. I thought, how could this possibly be? As you look through this, 
Note the phrases and ideas that you see in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. How many times you see this, this particular text being totally fulfilled by Jesus' death on Calvary. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Familiar phrase? One of the seven phrases spoken by Jesus on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me? So far my cries of anguish. Verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me. They shake their heads. Oh, we trust in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what we see when Jesus is on the cross. They mocked him. Saved others can't save himself. Call out to God. He'll come and get you. And so Jesus is surrounded by this pack of hyenas mocking and scoffing at him. And the psalm goes on, more of Psalm 22. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust. These dogs surround me like a pack of villains and circles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Written before crucifixion, written before the Romans who would bring crucifixion into the Middle East had even come. And so Jesus, with his mouth dried from being on the cross, do you remember what happened? They put something on something and held it up. What did they put on? They grabbed a sponge and dipped it in wine. Remember? Yeah, vinegar. And they put it up so that Jesus could cleanse his mouth and say his last words. And of course, here it is. We're reading something that looks like, it looks like an eyewitness account of the crucifixion. It looks like somebody, a reporter had been taking notes. People mock him. Look, his, his mouth is dry. Ah, they've pierced his feet. Oh, they've pierced his hands. It looks like somebody has taken detailed notes of the crucifixion. This is a thousand years beforehand because the cross was no accident. And Jesus, we can see, is the absolute fulfilment of scriptures as we read through this in Psalm 22. Let's go on. All my bones are on display. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What did the soldiers do as Jesus was hanging on the cross? He had a garment that was seamless. It wasn't sewn up the sides, it was woven as one. And so they gambled and cast lots to see who would get this garment. They took and gambled Jesus' coat, his garment, this seamless garment. This was written a thousand years before Jesus. And Jesus, we can see on the cross, this is the absolute fulfillment of the mission of God for his son, the Messiah. I tell you tonight, the cross was no accident. That is absolutely amazing to read the scripture. Let's go on to another scripture. That talks about the physical thing. He talks about the spiritual things that's happening on the cross. Surely, Isaiah 53 tells us, surely he took our pain. He bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid him on him the iniquity of us all. 
And so Psalm 22 talks about what we see is the prophetic, perfect fulfilment of Jesus' death on the cross. But Isaiah 53 tells us what is happening in the spiritual realm. There is a spiritual transaction here that your sins and mine, we all like sheep have gone astray. We deserve punishment. I deserve punishment from God. You deserve punishment from God. So what's God done with your punishment when you're a believer? He's picked up that punishment and he's laid it on Jesus. And Jesus was being punished on the cross, but not for his sin. Supernaturally, God has transferred your sins to him. So Jesus is being supernaturally punished for your sins so that you and me can be completely forgiven. This is an amazing thing. And so we see way before Jesus, maybe six, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus, this Isaiah prophecy of what's happening transactionally between God and us, that Jesus is dying, not by accident, not by the will of a mob, not by the will of a person that betrayed him, not by a bunch of people who were jealous, but by the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord so that we can be completely forgiven. Let's go on to the next reference, Isaiah 53.10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an, an, what? an offering, cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin and he'll see his offspring prolong his days. And the will of the Lord was to prosper in his hand. And so we there see Jesus dying. He is an offering for sin, but not at his, but for ours, so that we might prosper. And so Jesus here being sacrificed like the Passover lamb. So when we get into the New Testament, and we're very familiar if we read the Old Testament, that they used to celebrate every year the Passover feast where a lamb was sacrificed or a goat was sacrificed one year old uh, without blemish. And it reminded them of the time where they escaped Egypt, where on the night that they escaped, God told them to take a lamb or a goat and to sacrifice it, to put the blood on the doorpost. And that this lamb that was sacrificed, this perfect blemishless lamb that was sacrificed, when the angel of punishment swept over Egypt, he would see that the doorposts of the house had been daubed with the blood of the lamb. And the angel of God's punishment would pass over them. And so this Passover festival is central to the Jewish nation, central to the Jewish nation. In fact, it was the Passover festival that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. And so there they were celebrating this Passover. So there's this notion in, in the scripture that the lamb is sacrificed so that God's punishment will pass over us. So what is... How does John the Baptist, whose job was to introduce Jesus, he was Jesus' cousin, and it was his job to introduce Jesus. This is how he describes Jesus when Jesus turns up for his public ministry. Let's have a look. John chapter 1, verse 29. John, who is the announcer of Messiah. Next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. and He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees the mission of Jesus. He sees Jesus as a type of this, this sacrificial lamb that would be sacrificed and that he would take away the sins of the world, take my sins and your sins away. He would come to be sacrificed so that we might be forgiven. Isn't that awesome? It's absolutely awesome. And then 1 Corinthians reaffirms that when it says this, get rid of the old yeast 
so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you already are. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so Jesus very clearly understood the mission. John, who introduced Jesus' public ministry, said, Look, there's the Lamb of God. And what does the Lamb of God do? The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The cross was no accident. And so when we read verses like John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, Jesus clearly knew what his mission would be, and he would uh, walk the way of suffering. That song, Jerusalem, written by the Castle Hill Anglican Church, City of Light, is that right? Is that where it comes from? Somebody tell me. That's so powerful I can barely sing it. That does my heart and my head in. See him walking through the streets of Jerusalem. When I see that in my, in my mind's eye, I'm broken. I'm full on broken. If you go to Jerusalem, scholars and traditionalists say that they think they might know the path that Je- Jesus was taken from when he was convicted up to, the, up to where he was crucified. Perhaps it's speculation, but it's tradition. They call that path the Via Dolorosa. That means the way of suffering. The way of suffering. The Via Dolorosa. When Jesus came into this world, he came to walk the Via Dolorosa. He came to walk the path of suffering. He came to be that lonely man carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem. He came to be the one that would be laid out and have the soldiers smash nails into his hands and his feet. He came to be the sacrificed lamb of God. He came to be the one that would be there and cry out with a forsaken language, my God, my God, where, why have you forsaken me? He came to be the one who would bear your sin. He came to be the one whose your sin and my sin would be laid upon him. And the cross was no accident. And Jesus pressed in on that and he absorbed that plan of God for his life but the cross wasn't the end he was on the cross for perhaps six hours or so he knows that the cross will not be at its end this is what Hebrews 12 2 tells us for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God so when we see Jesus, he goes through the cross, but it doesn't end there. We are resurrection people. We are people with a living hope. We worship Jesus Christ. He is our risen, reinstated, ruling and returning Lord. Did you catch that? He's our risen, reinstated, ruling and returning Lord. It's no accident. And we are preparing ourselves to get back. Miriam Webster... For the Snickerers, it's a great dictionary. Sudden event, such as a crash, it's not planned or intended, that causes damage or injury. An event that occurs by chance. The cross was no accident. It was God's master plan for salvation. I've only got one thing to say to you tonight. When John saw Jesus... And he introduced him to the world. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only thing I want to know from you tonight in your heart before God right now is, has he taken away your sin? Has 
Has he taken away your sin? Have you by faith received Jesus Christ into your life so that the punishment and the iniquity that you've done and you deserve punishment for has been taken and laid upon him? Because that's why he came, to be punished for our sins so that we might be free. Can you say tonight with confidence, yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God and he's taken away my sin. Hallelujah. If you can't say an absolute definite yes to that tonight, you need to talk to somebody in leadership. You need to talk to a pastor or an elder or a leader because there's nothing more important to realise that Christ's death was no accident. It was for you. Jesus died for you. Receive that full benefit in your lives and be restored to God as you should be.